Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Leanna Scacchetti. And I'm Rochelle Aline. Governor Rick Scott unveiled his budget priorities for the coming year today. Scott has already announced some spending items, including a push to provide a $1,200 one-time bonus for state employees. The legislative director for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees in Florida, Doug Martin, says the bonus is a step in the right direction, but more change is necessary. The governor has proposed granting one-time lump sum bonuses to all employees of $1,200. Uh, this will be the first time in five years that employees have gotten a bonus. However, it's been since 2006 since employees have received a general cost of living increase to their salaries. We appreciate the governor making this financial commitment to all state employees and recognizing uh, the work of, that uh, state employees are doing for the people of Florida. However, we would um, continue to advocate for across-the-board uh, cost-of-living adjustments because it's been since 2006 since state employees have received a general pay increase. And in that time, they've lost uh, more than 10% of their earning power to inflation, and there have been changes where they contribute 3% to their pensions as well as uh, contributing more to Social Security. So. All that combined means that the earning power of state employees has uh, decreased by as much as uh, 15 percent. Martin says AFSCME will continue to work with the state lawmakers to ensure that state employees will receive benefits, which will counteract the rising cost of living. We are the collective bargaining agent. Uh, we're the union for uh, uh, most state career service employees. And so we are in, in uh, contract negotiations with the state, and we have proposed a 5% cost of living adjustment uh, to state employees. Also, there's been legislation filed um, uh, for a 2% raise as much as a 7% raise. And then also, uh, Senator Bill Montford of Tallahassee has uh, been in discussions with the president of the Senate about a cost-of-living um, adjustment for state employees. In your area, Senator Rob Bradley is the chair of the, um, the uh, Criminal Justice Appropriations Committee uh, in the Senate, and corrections employees, um, in addition to the $1,200 bonus, the governor is proposing a $500 bonus or a $1,000 bonus for non-direct and direct care employees at the Department of Corrections. The governor has also proposed um, performance pay bonuses of $2,500 and $5,000. However, with the performance pay, we want to make sure that it is uh, distributed fairly so that uh, all members of a work unit who have uh, achieved outstanding or commendable performance receive it so it's not just one or two people. Because if it's not done um, fairly, then it's a system of favoritism, not of merit. He also says the organization will be working to secure benefits for state employees in future budgets. Our discussions with uh, legislators have been supportive of a uh, cost of living uh, salary increase for state employees, and uh, we're going to continue to work on this issue. And there, there's a recognition that after six years of economic hardship, 
it's time for state employees to have their salaries raised. Martin is optimistic that state lawmakers will make changes to the budget that the state employees need. Um, has proposed no increase in insurance premiums for state career service employees. We very much appreciate that. We also are going to be working on issues of uh, fairness and discipline and then uh, working to um, uh, so that uh, perhaps there can be some special pay issues for areas where there's high turnover in state government. Um, last year, there was a special pay issue for child protective investigators to uh, try and stem the turnover of our, uh, our DCF employees who work with children. And uh, you know, uh, there may be other, <clears throat> other changes put forward. And then, of course, we're going to be working on issues where um, you know, private business is trying to put forth uh, privatization of institutions. But we haven't seen any major uh, initiatives in that regard yet. So at this point, um, oh, and actually one other item, and I've talked to your radio station about it before, is they're proposing to close the Florida retirement system to new hires, and that would be have a very detrimental effect on uh not only the retirement system for existing employees, but it would uh, certainly harm the ability of the state to attract new employees and uh, would uh, perhaps cost the state billions of dollars unnecessarily uh, going into years. That's uh, going to be a, an issue that's coming up in the next uh, few weeks. The state uh, has not received back its uh, study on the costs of closing the full retirement system, but for um, listeners in uh, in your area for those who are at the school boards, county, state, state university, community college, all would be affected by those retirement system changes if uh, those go forward. State lawmakers will use the proposed budget as a framework for a final budget, which will be passed during the annual session that begins in March. A missing Ocala boy was found today, but the six-day search for him led authorities across central Florida. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Ariana Lipkin reports on the full story. A missing Ocala youngster has been found safe and sound, but only after a complicated series of events. Public Information Officer for Ocala Police Department, Sergeant Angie Scrobel, says that on the 25th they received a well-being check from the Department of Children and Family Services out of Tampa for one-year-old Robert Patrick Haggerty, his father, Patrick Stewart Haggerty, and his mother, Katina White, and reported that they were all well and in Ocala. At approximately 3.10 in the afternoon, they called back saying they had gotten a court order to take the child into custody and away from the parents and asked that we go back to the address. We returned and she and the child were gone. At the time, it did not appear that the child was in any danger, so an alert was not issued. He was, however, listed into our FCIC system as missing, and Ebola was placed, and other agencies in locations where they might have fled to were notified, and several addresses over the course of time were checked. The father allowed officers to search the apartment, claiming that he did not know where the mother or child were. We were in constant touch with the DCF caseworker, and the concern came 
that there was a date in question where the prescriptions that were necessary for the child's well-being were going to run out. The next day, the father told police that he was in contact with the mother by text message and said that she was in Port New Ritchie, but police could not locate her, and yesterday, a warrant was issued. So that's when the alert stepped up because the concern for the child's well-being because the, the medication was necessary. We stepped it up and issued a missing child alert through FDLE. Police checked the father's home again after he claimed he had Facebook messaged with the mother, but did not know where she was. It was later discovered that a man matching the father's description had picked up the child's prescription at an Ormond Beach Walgreens the day before. We couldn't confirm that mother actually had filled that medication and had that medication for the child, so we maintained looking for the child um, because we couldn't confirm that he was being given the proper medication. But then the police received a lead. We were notified that uh, his mother had dropped him off at the grandmother's house and Daytona Beach. We contacted the Daytona Beach Police Department via Volusia County Sheriff's Office, and they responded and did locate, did locate the child there in the home unharmed, but mom was not there. Robert is currently being taken care of by the grandparent, but a warrant is still issued to the mother for failure to appear in violation of a court order. For Florida's 89.1 in Gainesville, I'm Ariana Lipkin. The Gainesville Police Department officially began the demolition of its old headquarters today, starting a new phase in the construction of a new headquarters and training facility. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Jesse Pagan has more. The walls of the old Gainesville Police Department headquarters came down this morning as the first step in constructing a new headquarters and training facility. Public Information Officer Ben Tobias says that although he has fond memories of the building, he's ready to move forward. For a lot of us, it has a ton of sentimental value. Um, I was sworn in in that building in January 2005 and uh, you know, made a lot of great friends there. Um, have a lot of fantastic memories from inside and outside of those walls. Uh, and I, I know for a lot of us, you know, the few officers that you saw standing around and watching this, this has been such a long time coming for us. We've been out of that building since December of 2010 and we just had to watch it sit empty. The project originally began as a complete renovation but had to be stopped due to structural issues in the building. Money also played a role in the decision to do a complete reconstruction. It turns out, creating a whole new building costs less. The near $11 million project will be built in the same area and include a new parking lot. Well, we can expect, uh, if all goes well, of course, with any construction project, uh, there are some certain delays, but the projected opening date uh, is March of 2014 at this point. Uh, it's going to be on generally the same site, but it's going to be a little bit further north. The existing structure that you uh, are seeing being demolished, uh, most of that is going to be a parking area. Uh, so the, uh, the new structure is going to be going a little bit further north, a little bit closer to the intersection of 8th Avenue and 6th Street. Since 2010, the Gainesville Police Department has had to work out of satellite offices, trailers, and cars scattered all around the city. The new headquarters bring an opportunity to get all operations under one roof. Completion of the new building is expected in March of 2014. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Jesse Pagan. 
For a video of the beginning of the demolition, check out our website at wuft.org. The Florida Supreme Court has finally settled a long-running argument over which state entity has the power to set university tuition and has sided with the legislature over the Florida Board of Governors. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports the Florida Board of Governors, which oversees the state's public universities, was once a party to the lawsuit, but withdrew after striking a deal with the legislature to share tuition-setting authority. Former Governor Bob Graham brought the lawsuit, saying the board should have the tuition power because he believes the legislature is too political. But in its ruling, the Florida Supreme Court said politics or not, the legislature still controls the purse strings. In writing the opinion, Justice Barbara Pariente said when the board was created in 2002, lawmakers never gave it tuition authority. And during oral arguments in the case, she was skeptical of those claims. The power to set tuition and fees and collect those and then decide how they're expended. Again, the judicial branch, which is a co-equal branch of government, has no control over the appropriations. That is legislative. The ruling doesn't change much. Back in 2007, the Board of Governors and Legislature agreed to split tuition authority and cap increases at 15 percent a year. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. The state of Florida has changed the way drivers can obtain their vehicle titles. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leanna Scacchetti spoke with a department official to find out more. The Florida Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles now offers a way for drivers to access their motor vehicle and vessel titles. Spokesperson for the department, Kirsten Olson-Doolin, says that the department now holds electronic titles called e-titles. Electronic titling has been around uh, for a while, but not many people took advantage of that. So kind of in the spirit of going green and also making life easier for everyone, um, now electronic titles are your first option. And then if you need a paper copy for something, you can uh, get that at a tax collector's office printed out for you. Olson Doolin says that this system will make it easier for people to access the titles. Anyone who needs the title is not actually maintaining it. All you have to do is go to a tax collector's office or go online uh, to the Highway Safety Motor Vehicles website and order it. So, you know, we do all the technical stuff, and, uh, and you just have to open up, you know, your mail when it gets to you. The previous system for obtaining duplicate or replacement titles involved a lot more hassle and a lot more money, as the new e-titles would only cost drivers $2.50. Previously, if you had a had a paper title and something happened to it, you had to go um, get a new paper title, which was about $75 to get, um, and you had to go to an office to get it, um, and any transaction required that. So that was a big hassle. Um, a lot of times, it's Things with your titles, you don't do much with that all the time if you have a car. So all of a sudden, maybe five years later, you're trying to sell the car, and you got to find out what you did with that piece of paper. Olson Doolin says that in addition to the reduced fee required to get your title, you also eliminate risks involved with the safety of your title, including losing or misplacing it. You also reduce the chance of fraud because potential thieves will not have easy access to the title, and you cut the cost of replacing the lost titles with e-titles costing as little as $2.50 versus $75 for a duplicate paper title. Olson Doolin also says that the system is more environmentally friendly because they aren't printing as much paper. She also says that this will provide benefits across the board. 
college students probably have a need where maybe there's a car they're using and uh, their parents are giving it to them or something like that. So it's an official document that you have to keep up with, but now we'll make it easier by keeping up with it for you. She says that it's a well-vetted system and that the department feels comfortable with it. There is, however, only one exception to this new convenience. The only, uh, there's a, there is a situation where if you have a car, say an older car that's been paid off and you're trying to do it with a private sale, you'll still need to get a paper title in order to transfer ownership because um, those currently aren't in the system. But um, any, any new car, once you uh, get it from a dealer, you'll have an e-title automatically generated for you. Olson Doolin says that if anybody wants to learn more about the e-titles or has any questions, they can visit the Florida Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles website. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leanna Scacchetti in Gainesville. February is Islam Awareness Month, and the organization Islam on Campus is hosting various events on the University of Florida's campus to spread the word. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Chelsea Ray has more on the events. The Islam on Campus group, also known as the IOC, held a fair at the Rights Union for Islam Awareness Month. The IOC strives to educate people and give them a general understanding of the Islamic religion, culture, and people. In a post-9-11 world, the people of the U.S. and its media seem to have a negative perception of Muslims. The IOC strives to eliminate that common misconception. Rubaya Zenit was working one of the booths at the fair and explains more. Uh, basically, this is the um, Islam Awareness Fair, and it's uh, a two-day event, so we're going to be here tomorrow as well. And it's basically to kick off um, Islam Awareness Month, which is February. And within that month, we're basically going to have lectures and um, seminars and all these different events to sort of um, educate people on... Uh, the basics of Islam and uh, sort of uh, to destroy the media uh, biases and misconceptions and stuff like that. Samir Sadunji, the Vice President of External Affairs of Islam on campus, was also helping at the fair, running the Arabic calligraphy booth. He explains a little more about why he was volunteering. A lot of people have misconceptions on what Islam is and um, they don't really know the rich cultural diversity that we have. People think that Islam is monolithic, that it's only like Arabs or that it's only just one thing. It's very bland or dry. However, Islam is all over the world and you have rich cultural syncretism. So you have like South Asian, Malaysian, Chinese, American, African, Arab. So all of these cultures have contributed to the heritage of Islam. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention released a study on Tuesday saying one in six Americans get sick from food poisoning every year. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Michael Higdon tells us a surprising cause. A recent government report links most food poisoning cases to leafy vegetables. Associate Professor at the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition, Keith Schneider, says this research has actually been going on for years. I don't know how recent it is, first off. This is data that we've known about for over a decade. It's come to the public consciousness because of the new Food Safety Modernization Act. Produce safety has been an area that has been actively studied for, again, well over a decade. There are several programs that are already out there. So my reaction is, again, this is nothing new. Uh, this is more of a sort of a general announcement for in advance of the coming FSMA regulation. The numbers that they're, they're quoting aren't surprising. The only thing 
to kind of caution is a lot of the numbers since they're collected from the late 90s all the way up until just recently you need to be careful because a lot of the large outbreaks that are discussed in there in fact occurred several years ago uh, towards the beginning of those studies when a lot of these food safe food safety programs were in place he says there hasn't been a spike in the number of outbreaks they have gotten better at finding the source of the illnesses as far as what you should be worried about the amount of illness associated with these types of products is very very low so I don't know if you need to be worried about these at all. The, the number of contaminated produce is in the order of one out of a thousand, one out of every ten thousand. So it's very, very low. What you want to be concerned about, especially in the home, um, more illnesses occur in the home through improper handling of foods, uh, improper cooking of meats and poultry. Produce presents a unique problem because a lot of times things like tomatoes, leafy greens, which are two of the large um, to the, the produce that are most associated with foodborne illness is since they're not eaten or they're eaten typically raw, there's not a whole lot you can do other than um, uh, washing them, keeping them from being cross-contaminated with other food that you're preparing in your kitchen, making sure that coming from a safe, reliable source, somebody who's uh, using good agricultural practices to produce the product. Schneider adds even with the recent study, local growers should be okay. The news release that was that was put out is just drawing attention to uh, um, n not an outbreak, not anything new. Um, so as far as impact to local growers, I can't see it have a, a huge impact. The the large listeria outbreak in uh, cantaloupes that happened in Colorado probably has a more significant impact because local growers are now trying to decide whether or not to plant cantaloupe this year, whether it's worth the risk and whether or not people will be buying that product. Um, the major leafy greens outbreaks are, um, or, are, are very distant. Uh, the major tomato outbreaks, very distant in the past. Not that people shouldn't be concerned, but uh, again, a, a lot of improvements have been made over the last couple of years. This information that, again, is summarizing uh, illnesses over the last decade, I don't think is going to have much impact on the local growers and, and their economy and, and what they're planning to do. I think it's going to be business as usual. He says the government is in the process of instilling a new law and regulations. FISMA is probably the most sweeping new uh, food regulation in the last well, near century. Uh, it has just been released. It's a proposed rule. It's up for comment. I think there's probably about 100 days left in the comment period for those in the industry. Um, once that is um, uh, been reviewed, they'll review all the comments. It's probably going to be another year before the law is passed. But what that will do is it will make uh, food safety mandatory uh, for most of the growers um, in the U.S. and, and, and abroad as well. Uh, there's going to be an exemption for the small farmer. Um, thus, small farmers technically will not have the same level of food safety. But um, despite this whole new sweeping regulation, what people probably don't realize is large stores, uh, the large chain supermarkets, the large box stores, uh, uh, who anybody who's selling produce uh, has been implementing or demanding from their farmers that food safety be uh, a number one issue. One of the driving forces, the Walmarts, the Publix, the Costcos of the world have been um, 
have been trying to bring up the level of food safety in produce now for well over a decade and a half. Uh, and this has been going on behind the scenes. Uh, really what FISMA is going to do is put some uh, legal teeth behind the food safety operations of some of the, the medium and large farms. Uh, but even the small growers, regardless of size, if you're going to sell to one of these big stores, or you're going to have to have a food safety program now, or else you're going to have to sell at a roadside stand, because no, no, no large store is going to take the risk anymore. The government study did say that while more people have gotten sick from plants, more died from contaminated poultry. The number of outbreaks. In terms of absolute numbers, the number of produce outbreaks tends to be smaller than things like meat and poultry um, or eggs. The number of people affected, knowing that an outbreak is two or more people, that if you just ignore the number of outbreaks but just look at the total number of illnesses, produce takes the largest slice of that pie, about 40 percent of the illnesses associated with all these outbreaks uh, tend to be of or um, produce related. If you look at the number of outbreaks, it's more like 15 to 16 percent if you were doing from an outbreak or incident case. So um, produce outbreaks tend to affect a much larger group of people and again when you're dealing with produce if you were to use contamin contaminated irrigation water um, you could contaminate a lot of product which is going to go to a lot of different people. If I have a contaminated egg, again, that one egg is only going to affect maybe that one person or one family. Um, so they tend to have um, more illnesses associated with those outbreaks, and it's about 40% according to the latest study. Schneider says that norovirus is the most common food contaminant that makes people sick. The norovirus is kind of interesting. It's one of the things, and, and a lot of the illnesses that we're talking about, some of the ones we, there are confirmed cases and then there are estimated cases. Um, most of the bacterial foodborne illnesses, those caused by bacteria, um, they tend to be more readily identified because they're easier to culture, uh, they're a lot easier to work with. Neurovirus, it used to be called Norwalk virus and Norwalk-like viruses. They were, this whole class of um, uh, virus um, was then lumped together into noroviruses as one group. If you looked at all the bacterial foodborne illnesses, and again, depending on what study you're reading, it's several million. If you look at norovirus as a group, it could be tens of millions, two, you know, 20, 30 million cases. And that number is an estimate. Uh, for every one confirmed case, you may have 10 or 30 actual cases. So depending on the organism, um, you, we're just doing estimates of, you know, how much uh, Imodium is bought at the stores, how many people, you know, are missing work. So we, we, we kind of guess at what it is. Uh, norovirus is a typically non-fatal, self-limiting stomach bug. When you think about, oh, I had an upset stomach or I just wasn't feeling good that day and about, you know, 24 to 48 hours you're feeling better, it could be a norovirus as opposed to maybe a bacterial foodborne infection. Um, uh, when you think of norovirus, the first thing that comes to my mind, uh, you always hear about the cruise ships, that uh, cruise ship goes out uh, for a seven-day cruise and they're, and they're coming back after four days because the entire, you know, shipload of people has gotten sick. Uh, fairly contagious, pass very easily from person to person, uh, especially when they don't wash their hands properly. Uh, the illness is not all that pleasant and in fact uh, it is very, very common. Uh, you can find norovirus in, um, 
again, pretty much everywhere. Uh, you don't hear a lot about it or you haven't heard a lot about it because, again, you don't hear very many deaths associated with it. When you think salmonella, I'm thinking five, 600 people a year. When I'm thinking campylobacter, about, about 100 and maybe 125. E. coli, L157H7, particularly nasty bug, uh, 60 to 80 maybe. And it, these numbers vary from year to year. When you think of norovirus, I'm thinking zero. So a uh, lot of foodborne illness, very few people, very few deaths associated with it. But again, fairly common. And um, again, one of the key issues uh, is farmers using clean water, whether that be irrigating in the field, washing them at a packing house, and when you're coming home, use them when you're washing in your sink. I mean, most people don't think twice throwing their chicken in the sink and then washing it off, and then they throw their lettuce in that right next to it, not thinking that have a sanitizer sink after that or using a cutting board. Uh, very few people use a cutting board for chicken and then using lettuce, but what they don't realize is that they'll easily pass something into their sink and thinking that just washing that then is going to make it clean, and it won't. So there's a lot of chance for cross-contamination, especially in the home. Schneider adds produce is getting safer. He says, however, the harder you do food safety, the more it costs the farmer. But farmers are doing everything they can to produce a safe product. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Michael Higdon in Gainesville. Former Florida GOP Chair Jim Greer plans to call as witnesses during his criminal trial a former Florida governor, a former U.S. senator, four past and present Florida House speakers, a former president of the Florida Senate, and a former Florida attorney general. The defense witness list made public on Thursday includes former Governor Charlie Crist and former U.S. Senator George Lemieux, as well as past and present leaders of the Florida House, including Dean Cannon, Tom Feeney, John Thrasher, and Will Weatherford. Also on the list are former Florida Senate leader Mike Haridopoulos and former Florida Attorney General Bill McCollum. Greer's trial on theft and other charges is set to start February 11th. He is pleading not guilty to charges he funneled party money to his private company. Craving a cafe con leche or pastelito? One area restaurateur has you covered. Today in our ongoing series on food and food culture in Gainesville, WUFT multimedia reporter Sammy Main profiles an entrepreneur whose mission is to blend the different flavors of Latin food and provide an offering that matches the diversity of cultures and people that originally drew her to Gainesville. Before finding Gainesville, Leonor Antony lived in Venezuela, went to film school in San Francisco, and was bored with all the horses with her husband in Ocala. Throughout her travels, she was struck by the unique and vibrant culture that made Gainesville stand out from the other cities she called home. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. I know, I know. I got your hello. She opened Corner, a Latin fusion restaurant that is different from anything else she thought Gainesville had to offer. For breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it combines the flavors from multiple countries all under one roof. Leonor cares so much about her restaurant that she considers it to be a member of her family. And I said, I, all of a sudden, I have a third child. This is crazy. <laughs> so you do feel like a mom of, of food because it's, it's something that it's, in this case, it's, it's going to people. It's, it's going to be in people's soul and in people's heart. I kept searching and searching, so but it took me 20 years to realize, well, this is what I liked in the first place, to feed people. And people are really, really happy when I feed them. 
Cooking, when you're Latin, is not something you learn. Some, nobody teaches you. You are born in a culture where everybody cooks. Leonor's goal when opening Corner was to combine real Latin flavors with a particular beat of the people and audience that Gainesville offers. So I decided to not only put together all these uh, Latin cultures, but also make it authentic and make it, you know, different from what it's offered. Because I thought the people from Gainesville would appreciate that. It represented because it's that mixed of things that people like. Openness to culture, you know, and to foreign things. Openness to, to things that are authentic. It's that eclectic thing that Gainesville is. You know, Gainesville somehow, it's also a mix of all these layers. Gainesville, it's a mix of everything. Those doctors, those nurses, and Corner is a mix of also all those cultures. So in that way, I think there is an analogy. Corner opened in August of 2012 and has become a place for people and students to hang out and try a different culture's comfort food. For more information, visit WFT.org. And for Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Sammy Main. For more on this story and to see the others in our food series, log on to WUFT.org. As in most presidential election years, barely a day went by without one of the candidates or their surrogates visiting Florida last year. And that brought NPR's White House correspondent Ari Shapiro to the Sunshine State quite a bit, covering the Romney campaign. It is so nice to be back in Florida when there are no political ads on TV. <laughs> you had how many visits here during the presidential campaign? I lost count, but I have to say it was always so nice after being in flat, snowy Ohio and Iowa and freezing cold New Hampshire to come to Florida. I was so happy this was a swing state. It was like for the mental health of all of the political reporters, being able to come here on the campaign trail was always a pleasure. Was it just the weather or was it also the peculiarities that Florida has become known for? Florida is an amazing place to be a reporter because of the peculiarities, but honestly, I'm just talking about the weather. There were some interesting peculiarities as well. For example, I remember being in Daytona Beach with Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan on the weekend of Biketoberfest, which was a big motorcycle rally, and I did a story about the gender gap, why white men tend to favor Romney and Ryan. People talked a lot about why women favored Obama and Biden, but I did a story about the other side of the gender gap, and it was great talking to these, you know, big, burly, leather-clad, tattooed biker dudes about politics, only in Florida. Only in Florida, too. Romney had a lot of visits here, but this is also where he had several missteps. Can I see if I can think of some of them? Okay. I know he had some of my friends are NASCAR team owners here. That was one of the ones here, right? The 47% video was a fundraiser in Florida. I mean, those have got to be like the top two on the list. Okay, what else is on the list? I also, too, am unemployed. Tampa oh, right, Roundtable. Right, right, right. That was early in the campaign. I, too, am unemployed. And also, this is where he's saying, God bless America. Oh, yes, at the villages. And, you know, there were even smaller things. I was remembering uh, he did an event in front of a foreclosed house in Naples, Florida. And before he arrived... A DJ was playing music, and one of the songs they played was Celebrate Good Times. And I thought, 
That does not seem to be the right musical choice for this event in front of a foreclosed home. How would you characterize his campaign in Florida? There were very specific niche ways that he campaigned in Florida. So when he was in South Florida, he was always with Marco Rubio. There was always at least one event that was clearly directed towards Hispanic voters. When he was in the panhandle, he would campaign with country music singers. Uh, on the Space Coast, it was something else. On the Gulf Coast, it was yet something else. At the villages, Paul Ryan, I remember, campaigned with his mother in the villages. And so one one of the things that's so amazing about Florida is that it contains so many worlds and the campaign really tried to niche market to each of those worlds to win the entire state, which ultimately they, of course, failed to do. Do you think that was a surprise to them on election night? Yes. There's this big narrative that they believed they were going to win. And I think that narrative is sort of overstated, but I do think they truly believed they were going to win Florida. Florida could have two native sons or one of two native sons on the ticket. Yeah. Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, and I think, you know, either one would help Republicans carry Florida, certainly. What do you see a ticket in 2016 looking like? I think we have passed the point where any major party can have a ticket of two white men. I even asked the question in 2012, after Romney named Paul Ryan to the ticket in their first week campaigning together, they went to Miami and they campaigned with Marco Rubio at El Palacio de los Jugos, this Cuban juice place in Miami. And I did a story asking the question, is a ticket of two white men a disadvantage in 2012? And I had no idea then how prescient that would be. But in fact, it really was a disadvantage. And I don't think we'll see it again. Thank you for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Rochelle Aline. And I'm Leanna Scacchetti. 